Tonight's scripture reading is Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28, and John 17, verses 20 to 23. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now moving to the New Testament. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. The word of the Lord. Well, for those of you that have been with us this fall, you know that um, we've been uh, considering the Trinity, and uh, we've spent the last four or five weeks, trying to unpack the doctrine of the Trinity from Scripture, understanding how the early church put together this, this belief in the one God of Israel, the divine lordship of Christ, the, the present experience of the Holy Spirit, into this beautiful idea that, that God exists as a relationship of three persons. And my, my plan has been for the last part to to sort of tease out the implications of that for us as a community, for us as people in relationship. If, if that's how God is in relationship, what, what does it say about us? And I've, I've had several false starts, several, uh, I try always to plan series out, and I've had three plans now that have all gone into the garbage. Um, um, the last plan, when I was with you, was I was going to talk to you about the Council of Nicaea this week. Uh, and, and I could tell you were on the edge of your seats about that. Um, Got lots of requests for a deep look at that. And uh, the more I got into it, the more I thought, mm, that's not going to work. So uh, if you ever want to have lunch and talk about the Council of Nicaea, call me. So what I, what I did was just step back, and I really don't know where all this is going to go the rest of this fall, but I, I'm, I'm trying to pay attention to what are the parts about the triune life, the divine community that first resonate with me, but then seem to resonate with with us as a people. And, and where I want to spend a little time tonight thinking with you is, is uh, to explore this question. What does it mean to be made in the image of a relational God? What does it mean to be made in the image of a relational God? Uh, we've spent a lot of time this fall developing this idea that unlike any other religion, our God is a relationship. When Scripture says God is love, 
It's referring to that fact that God exists in a community, that at the center of the world lies a relationship, a perfect community. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, uh, Lisa just read for us, she read the verse from the sixth day of creation. And on the sixth day of creation, the, the creation account slows down to give emphasis on what's happening. And uh, God says as he creates the first human beings, and, and man in the Hebrew in that verse is a broad term representing humanity, let us make man in our image after our likeness. One of the first things we see, and we looked at this a few weeks ago, is that even here in the first chapter of the Bible, there is a hint that the God of Scripture exists in community. He doesn't say, let me make man in my image. He says, let us make man in our image. And so even now, there's this idea that God uh, is relational. And this relational God creates human beings in his image after his likeness. Uh, there's not a lot of mystery about the Hebrew words. Uh, image just means representative, to, to look like something. After his likeness just, looks, just means to be similar to. And so the idea is, this could mean many things, but at the very least it means you are like God and that you are a fundamentally relational being. You and I are made in the image of a relational God Therefore, you and I are built for relationship. We're hardwired for relationship. We're, we're created for relationship. And, and to tease that even further, we need relationship, intimate relationship, the kind of relationship that Jesus prays for, right? John 17, he prays that the kind of intimate community he knows in the Trinity will experience, that that kind of community is a prerequisite for us to grow as Christians and as human beings. It's not optional. It's not something just for uh, touchy-feely people. Uh, It's not like AP physics that uh, you could have it if you wanted, but it really doesn't matter. No. This is something we all need if we're to become whole as the people of God. And when we don't have it, something breaks in us. Something goes wrong in us. You may remember after the fall of communism, uh, a bunch of stories came out about the orphanages in Romania, and, and one of the things that they found was that there uh, were a vast network of orphanages where these little children were left essentially on their own. They were fed, but nobody touched them, held them, or paid attention to them. And a few years later, a Harvard researcher went in to study the effect of this kind of relational deprivation, and NPR ran a story on it, and uh, in the story, the, uh, uh, the researcher shows the, the reporter a picture of six of these orphans and, and asks the reporter, how old do you think they are? And the reporter says, I don't know, I guess six or seven. And the, the researcher says, no, they're 16. And that was the impact of being raised without any relational care on their physical growth. He said they're also 40, 40 points behind in their IQ. This is not an optional thing. We, we need this kind of nurture and, and care because we're made in the image of God. Now, the main thing I want to explore tonight with you is, are two characteristics that we find in the relationships of the Trinity that are two characteristics of any intimate relationship. But before we do, I just want to, I just want to suggest 
uh, two other thoughts by way of an aside. If it's true that you and I are made in the image of a relational God, then, first of all, it, it really matters what happened to you as a child. Because one of the things you needed developmentally as uh, a little person is relationship, is connection, is love, is bonding. And if for some reason in your home that didn't happen, it's, it's like not getting enough vitamin D. It's like not giving, getting enough oxygen. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a serious deprivation. And so one of the things that I think you ought to at least think about as you look at your own story and you explore kind of what this whole series is saying to you is, if I'm made in the relationship, uh, the image of a relational God, if relationships are required for me to flourish, and let's say that in my family some things happened or didn't happen that meant that I, I, I did not get that kind of relational connection, that means that there is a, a wound in your life. It doesn't mean that you're cursed into it. It doesn't mean that there's nothing you can do about it. But it does mean that you need to pursue with God's people and with God healing in that area. And there is healing for you. There's healing in the people of God. There's healing in your relationship with God. So that would be the, the, the first thought. The second thought is, if this is true, that you and I are made in the image of a relational God, then, then that would explain why relational wounds hurt so much. And you've probably had this conversation or had this experience. I've had it many, many times. You're talking to somebody and you ask them to tell their story and, and they mention a relationship that happened in ninth grade and, and, and they weep or they, they're troubled by it. They're broken over it. And they say, I can't believe this still bothers me. What is wrong with me? Why does that still affect me so much? Why does that hurt so much? It shouldn't hurt me so much. Isn't God all I need? What is wrong with me? And one of the implications of this teaching is that if you are made in the image of a relational God, you are fundamentally relational. You need relationships to grow. And so relational wounds are not just nicks. They're not just uh, uh, inconveniences. They are damages uh, done against the very core of who you are as a human being. And so they're hard to get over. God will help us get over them in community and in, in Him. But I think it helps us understand why relational pain is so great. Now, I want to consider two characteristics of an intimate relationship that we see in the Trinity. And I'm going to use language from uh, current writings on relationship, but these, these words reflect biblical principles. And the first characteristic that we see when we look at the Trinity is attachment. The members of the Trinity have a deep bond with one another. They have a deep love and emotional and even spiritual connection with one another. In the, in the section that Lisa read just a moment ago, Jesus describes his deep connection with the Father. He says, you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. And earlier in John 14, a few verses earlier, he says to the disciples, don't you believe I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. 
Frederick Bruner has written a, a wonderful commentary on the Gospel of John. And when he comes to this section, he calls this section the connection. Because it's describing the connection that uh, Jesus has with the Father. And uh, Frederick Bruner uh, translates the little preposition, I am in God and, and the Father is in me, as locked into. So he translates it, don't you believe that I am locked into the Father and the Father is locked into me? And so one of the things that we see when we look at the relationships in the Trinity is there is this deep bond, this deep attachment, this deep connection, this, uh, this fusing, this intimate union. And, and you see it percolate up throughout the scriptures, right? Mark 3, uh, the baptism of our Lord. What happens? The Holy Spirit comes down. The Spirit, the Father's voice says, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus prays, Abba, Father, uh, there is this lovely, intimate connection between the Father and the Son and the members of the Trinity. So, if we're trying to figure out what an intimate relationship looks like, and we're looking to the Trinity for an example, the first thing that we notice is that an intimate relationship is, is marked by attachment, by a bonding, by connection, by a, a, deep, a deep union. And so the first skill that we need to cultivate intimate relationships is the ability to bond. The ability to connect. The ability to really move into that locked-in kind of relational union. Now, how do we do that? Because uh, this is hard. And again, we're not talking about doing this with every person that you know. We're talking about doing this in, in your closest relationships, uh, the, the people that you're investing the most in, your family, your friends, things like that. How, what does it look like to attach, to bond in, in, in these areas? Well, there is, there is no uh, book in the Bible that just addresses that explicitly, but if you look at the Trinity, there are some clues. And the first clue that we see is that the relationships of the Trinity are marked by vulnerable surrender and self-giving. The Father gives up His Son. The Son gives up His life. The Spirit seeks the, the glory of the Father and the Son. And, and every time I've been doing this all summer, I've been slowly going through John 14 to 17 and just taking notes about the life of the Trinity. And, and as you go along, you see this openness, this uh, receptivity, this yieldedness, this surrender, this deference to one another. And so to put it in our language, they are vulnerable with one another. And so if, if you want to move towards connection, towards a deep bonding with the people that you care about, the Trinity would suggest that being vulnerable is something you need to consider. And that's hard to do. But deep connection requires deep vulnerability. Why is it hard to do? Because if you are vulnerable, you will be hurt. You're putting yourself at risk. And one of the reasons why we struggle with intimacy in relationships is because we're born in a fallen world. We've all been hurt, some more than others. And so when you move towards a relationship, whether you know it or not, you bring into the relationship the fear of being hurt again. We can't help it. 
were sinners. We figured out early on how to protect our hearts so that we wouldn't get hurt again. And when two people come into a friendship or a marriage or a family, they come in with two self-protective walls pushing against each other, fighting against each other, with a determination never to get hurt again, and we wonder why we're not intimate. Someone asked me recently, uh, essentially this, they said, can you show me how to have intimate relationships, but can you guarantee me I'll never get hurt? No. No. And if your greatest goal in your marriage, if your greatest goal with your closest circle of friends is to never be hurt again, you can achieve that goal. You can never experience intimacy. Because intimacy requires vulnerability. And so one of the things that we might consider as a community is is what are small ways that we could move towards a little more vulnerability with the people we're walking closely with? Small ways. And again, this doesn't have to be with everyone. It shouldn't be with everyone. But the people you really want intimacy with, it should be. And Sandy and I have been been working on this, um, trying to be more open and vulnerable with each other as we seek intimacy with each other. Um, And it involves a lot of small choices to share uh, stuff you'd rather not share. Uh, Friday night, I uh, had this long dream, and uh, it just seemed to go all night long. And I, it, it started off when I was in a classroom taking a test. I always hate those dreams. And in the middle of the test, I get a headache. So I go out into this huge mall looking for a Tylenol. And I finally find a drugstore, and I find the Tylenol section, but all the wrapping is in French. And I realize I can't get the Tylenol. And then I realize I'm missing the class. So I run out, and I try to find the class, because if I don't get to the class, I don't pass the test, and then something bad happens. And then I get lost looking for the classroom, never get there, and wake up thinking, I'm going to flunk the test. Now, I don't know exactly what that was all about. I do know that I'd been working on this sermon this week, and I'd tried it in two different Bible studies. I tried it in our over 50 Bible study on on Friday, and it sort of clunked. And I felt like, you know, you don't really have this down yet, and you're going to have to redo this whole thing. And I was feeling anxious about the sermon. And so, Sandy and I, uh, Saturday, we were going to yoga. Now, you talk about being vulnerable, guys. <laughs> going to yoga. I mean, we're laying it on the line there for a... Uh, I think namaste means thank God it's over, I think is a... Um, so, I don't recommend it, but we're trying. And, and I thought, you know, I'd rather my wife not know that I still get anxious about preaching poorly. I mean, you'd think after 30 years, you'd sort of be over this. Uh, But then it occurred to me, yeah, but if you don't ever share with her what you're struggling with, you won't be close. And so I just said, on the way to yoga, I had this goofy dream, and I'm kind of anxious about the sermon. And she accepted that, encouraged me. Amazing thing. Two amazing things happened. The anxiety level went down, and we felt a little bit closer. So I think as a community, as we walk forward in this, we all have little choices to make. And again, I'm not saying, you know, let's not be that, that group, you know, where every time you say, how are you? No, how are you? And you can't get out of the hallway without <laughs> tears and Kleenex. I don't want that, God forbid. 
I'm too tired for that. Don't do that to me. Um, But let's have a few conversations where, where when you say, what was it like when you went home to see your mom? You, you really answer. And you're honest about it. Now, what's this dynamic go on? I don't know what to do about it, but, but sometimes I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm watching people at a, a spiritual uh, crisis point, and something inevitably goes bump in their lives, And some of them move towards community and risk vulnerability. And some real powerful healing goes on. But as often as not, some of them pull away and shut it down and start to grow old alone. It's a choice that we have to make. John Townsend, a Christian psychologist, he wrote, Attachments occur when we take the risk to allow someone else to matter enough to us to hurt us if they choose to. Hmm. Attachments occur when we take the risk to allow someone else to matter enough to us to hurt us if they choose to. Now, there's another clue about relationships that we see in the Trinity as we're trying to unpack this and tease this out. We're talking about how the Trinity connects and, and bonds with each other. One way is through vulnerability. But the Holy Spirit has something to do with it. The Holy Spirit is is just always somewhere involved in the relationships of the Trinity. If you go through John 14 to 17, you'll see this again and again. Uh, He's in the middle of everything. He he falls on Jesus as the Father calls on the Beloved Son. The Spirit hears what the Father and the Son says and speaks it. The Father sends the Spirit. The Son sends the Spirit. The Father sends the Spirit in the Son's name. Paul tells the Corinthians, the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. You know, everywhere you look, the Holy Spirit is involved in this intimate community. Uh, one church father even said he thought that the Holy Spirit was the love between the Father and the Son. And I think there's a principle here, and that's that the bonding relationally is ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit. You can't really... Do it yourself. Now, I know there's a lot of levels of human relationship, and and, and we can talk about the game together, or your trip to New York, or my trip to New York, and and that's fun, and that's good, and that's, that's fine. But I'm talking about a level of connecting that is deeper than that, that is this more Trinitarian kind of connecting that the Lord prayed for, and I'm increasingly convinced you can't get there without the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit's work is to help us connect. And, and I think essentially, this means something like this. Eugene Peterson, the, the writer, uh, calls spiritual direction tracking the spirit. And I think that's a good description for, for spiritual friendship. That, that, that instead of me getting together with you for breakfast or whatever, and I've kind of got my template, and you've kind of got your template, and we kind of go through things, that there is instead a prior commitment to identify what the Holy Spirit is doing in my life and his life and follow him into the conversation. And and I'm finding that to be rather unsettling in my relationships. But I'm also finding it leading to some rich conversations. 
And I'm finding more than ever before that I get into the middle of a conversation and when I've thrown up my agenda and I've laid down all my conversational skills that I've learned over all these years and I'm just going where the Spirit's going, that more often than not, halfway in, I have a, a moment of panic and think, I have no idea what to say here. Now, that's okay for you uh, because you're layman. Uh, however, I'm paid to know what to say. And more often than not, someone comes in, they want me to fix a problem. And that's what I think you pay me for, is to fix your problem. And what I'm realizing is, you don't really want me to fix your problem. And more often than not, I can't fix your problem. And the Spirit's doing something deeper than fixing your problem. And when you let go, and I let go, and we yield to the Spirit, we push into these places, we get some real crazy stuff that happens. Good stuff. Now, here's the warning. You know, on those... I love those commercials where it's like a 30-second commercial and the last eight seconds are this deep voice speaking real fast. Uh, this experiment killed every rat we tested it on. It'll probably, <laughs> but it won't kill you. <laughs> and then the people are dancing and there's balloons and flowers and all that stuff. Uh, this is where the low voice is saying, okay, warning, 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 warning. If you ask the Holy Spirit to change the way you relate, it won't be safe. If your primary goal in a conversation is to make sure that you don't get hurt, don't pray that prayer. That's not a good prayer to pray. So, first characteristic of of intimate relationships in in, in the divine community is this, this attachment, this connection, this bonding. The second seems like it's the opposite. The second characteristic we see is what we'll call separation. The members of the Godhead are each very distinct individuals. The Father is distinct. The Son is distinct. The Spirit is distinct. And you remember in the the first sermon, we talked about the early heresies about the Trinity. And one of the early heresies was modalism. And in modalism, they they so wanted to preserve the unity of the, the Godhead that they said you can't have three distinct people and there be unity. So really, they're just... Three different names for the same thing. And so they blurred all the distinction of all the roles. But the church fathers eventually said, nope, that can't be right because the scripture says they each have their own role, they each have their own personality, they each have their own name, they each have their own function. They're distinct. And this is the mystery of intimacy right here. Somehow in the Trinity, they are intimately connected, and yet they are separate, distinct. They have their own sense of self. Now today, I think, in the psychological literature, people would say that, that uh, this is talking about being well-differentiated or having good boundaries. John Townsend, uh, in a book on boundaries, writes this. He says, boundaries are foundational to a sense of identity. They give us a clear sense of where who I am begins and ends. This is essential for us to be able to love. People who are not clear about their own thoughts, feelings, values, motivations, and behaviors can never be sure if some sacrificial act they're performing for someone else is done freely or out of a sense of obligation, fear, or guilt. So there's a tension going on here. There needs to be deep connection, and there needs to be a sense of separateness, good boundaries, clear sense of self. When you have a clear sense of who you are in a relationship, you're you're comfortable with conflict and disagreement. You don't feel responsible for saving or fixing the other person. You can say no or 
I don't want to do that. You can approach relationships out of love and not need. You're comfortable with seeing the world differently. When you lack a firm sense of who you are in a relationship, you enter the relationship out of fear. And so you are, you are governed in your choices by the fear of hurting others' feelings, the fear of abandonment, the fear of anger, the fear of shame, the fear of punishment, the fear of being seen as unspiritual. These are the kind of things that govern the way you relate in the community, not love. If you don't have a firm sense of who you are in Christ, if you're not rooted and ground in the love of Christ, Ephesians 1, 3-9, if that's not your reality and you enter into the relationship, you're not leading by love, you're leading by fear. Now, the reality is, most of us gravitate towards one side of the pole or another. You, you kinda, kinda, you've got attachment and separation. There's a tension. You hold them both together. But most of us tend to move towards one side or the other. Some of us move all the way towards the attachment side, and we are so bonded and fused and identified with the other person that we lose our sense of self. And they call that codependency. Some of us are so on the other side, so separate, so distinct, so independent, so I don't care what you think, that there's no attachment at all. They call that psychopathy <laughs> or, you know, not being a very nice person. And, and somehow, you've got to hold these two together. Now, let's suppose you're struggling with the, the, the separateness side. You have a hard time with that in your relationships. Is there anything you can do? Here's a couple things I think you can do. Try telling the truth more, even when it might ruffle a few feathers. Be a little less guarded in your communication. Be a little more honest about, about how you're feeling about things. Just try it. I mean, just for fun, you might blow up Thanksgiving this year. If you're the one that's always, yeah, oh, yeah, ooh, I love that sweater. Yes, girl. Uh, you know, if that's you. Maybe this year you just say, uh, I, don't, I don't really see it that way. Or maybe not. <laughs> A pal settles on the crowd. Um, how about learning to respect others' separateness? See, if, if, you're, if you're having a hard time with your own separateness, you're... Your sense of unity is that we are all in this together. We all see this the same way. Everybody does this the same. And you're going to have a real hard time with letting the other person be who they are. So one of the, pra- the skills you can practice is to letting others be different. Let them be separate. Celebrate their separateness. And, and parents, this is especially true you know, when your kid wants to do something funky with their haircut or, or whatever it is. Just, just, We've got to watch the controlling and just celebrate separateness. Then lastly, pay attention to your source of anxiety. If you're anxious, are you anxious about something going on in your life? Or are you anxious about something going on in somebody else's life? In other words, are you more worried about your son's problem than your son is? Are you more worried about your friend's situation than your friend is? That's not anxiety you need to carry. And that's a sign that you've not fully established yourself as an independent person in the relationship. Now, interestingly, the, the, the speaker that put all this Trinitarian relating together for me better than any I've ever heard is about 20 years ago. He's a rabbi. 
His name was Ed Friedman, and he was a family uh, systems therapist, too, and he was speaking at a conference. And, and I'll never forget, he said that, that he felt, that he was talking about leadership, actually, but I think it applies to relationships. He said that a, a great leader was a non-anxious presence in a chaotic family system. That a great leader was a non-anxious presence in a chaotic family system. And that says it all, because in a relationship, in a community, especially in times of crisis, you've got to be present, right? You've got to care, you've got to be there, you've got to be attached, you've got to be bonded, you've got to be connected. But you have to be non-anxious. You can't bear all the anxiety of the system. You can't be sucked into all the needs of what everybody else thinks you, you need to do. I just thought that was a great picture of what we're talking about here. A non-anxious presence. I'm present, but I can handle it if you're not happy with me. Two characteristics of intimate relationships in the Trinity. Attachment and separation. If you want intimacy, you've got to learn to bond, and you've got to learn to be separate. And failing to learn those skills can have serious consequences. I thought about this with this silly story I'm going to end with. It illustrated this to me. A couple of weeks ago, Foundation sent Sandy and I and Austin Church up to um, New York City to go to a city movement conference with Tim Keller and, and some others. And uh, we got up there, uh, flew into LaGuardia. I, I don't travel much anymore. I haven't been in a cab in years. And uh, we hop off, and this nicely dressed gentleman pops up. He's got this brand new SUV, and uh, he says, 65 bucks will take you into the city. And we thought, well, that's a little high, but, but okay, we'll go with that. Uh, we get in the car, and everything's going fine at first. And, and then I noticed that there's no license inside the car saying that this is a, a registered taxi. And we go along for a little bit, wonder what's uh, up with that, but I don't see anything because, you know, I don't want, maybe that's just the way they do it now. And then later on we realized that the man said he was from Italy, but... Uh, there was Arabic playing on the radio. Huh. So we get down to the, the hotel where he drops us off, and he drives past the hotel. And uh, Austin says, hey, that's the hotel. Let me out. And I say, oh, Austin, <laughs> he knows a better way. Just don't, don't, don't make it. So, so the guy keeps going, and he says something about I'm going to go around the back way. Well, he goes around the next street. And Austin says, stop right now, let me out. I'm still kind of drooling on myself, wondering, something doesn't seem right here. (laughs) Two blocks later, he's heading for the interstate, and I finally, Mr. Brave here says, I'd like out too, sir. He locks the door. Then we hear a siren. The, The guy gets out of the lane he's in, goes the wrong way down a New York street, careening through cars till he goes up on top of the curb, the a plainclothes cop, three plainclothes cops pop out of the back, come up to the front, drag him out of the car, arrest him, put him in cuffs, grab the key, give us our bags, and the guy says, Welcome to New York. <laughs> True story. True story. And I look back and I think, My goodness, what could have happened? But I, I, I've thought about this for so long. Why on earth with the woman that I love and this young man in my church, why didn't I say anything when I'm being carjacked? (laughs) It gets worse as he's being arrested. I actually said, honey, get the wallet. I I want to make sure we pay him for the ride. (laughs) 
And, and the other cop says, he says, no, God bless you, go. <laughs> and he walks away. But I, I thought about that and I just thought how, how fear kept me from being a man in that situation. And how in relationships, fear so often keeps us from this intimate connection. Fear keeps us from being vulnerable with those that we love. Fear keeps us from uh, being afraid of rejection and having good boundaries. So my prayer for all of us is that the Father would baptize us all in His perfect love, cast out all fear, so that we could move towards one another and experience deep bonding and a healthy separateness. Let's pray. 